So let's welcome uh, Andrew Sandler. That's not me on the left, and that's certainly not me on the right. I had a um, deja vu moment, turning back the clock about 40 years, saw myself sitting where you sit, and people then that were about my age now poured a lot of investment in my life, and I couldn't do what I'm doing now, had they not done that. And I feel a debt to them. So I thought I'm just going to repay that debt to you. Is that okay? Sounds good. Um, so I'm talking uh, about something you may not think is relevant, but I assure you it is. And when I get done, you're going to say, hmm, yeah, I can see how that's important. Uh, I'm talking about uh, critical theory. I'll tell you what that is. But um, <clears throat> let me see if I can work this properly. So, anybody know who this gentleman is on the right? You do? Okay, so uh, you ate dinner in the Schaefer Hall, um, after which um, this man is named. Uh, This is the beginning of a book of his called The Christian Manifesto, which I read when I was not much older than you. One of the first books of his I read, one of the last he wrote. And uh, this reinforces exactly what you heard from Dr. Boot, and it is this. The basic problem of the Christians in this country in the last 80 years or so in regard to society and in regard to government is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. If you leave to give an answer and don't grasp much more than that, I think will have been a success. And I think you will grasp a lot more than that. But if for some reason you understand that, I think Dr. Boot and I and the others will say, well, that's not too bad. You understand this. Because essentially what he's saying is that most Christians don't really understand a Christian, fill in the blank, worldview. They see a problem with, see a problem with abortion. They see a problem with pornography, pervasiveness of homosexuality and socialism and so on. But they don't understand that this is all part of a single way of thinking. I'm going to talk about essentially that single way of thinking and the, uh, the theory, the philosophy behind it. It's generally called cultural Marxism, cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism, Western Marxism. Uh, but we need to start real quickly with a, with a history lesson. Um, <clears throat> Karl Marx How many of you have heard of Karl Marx before? Okay, that was his picture there on the left. Uh, Was a 19th century German intellectual. Anybody know the most famous book that he wrote? You still get it everywhere. Okay, that's though that's not 100% right, but that's really good. The Communist Manifesto with Engels. That's you can get that, download it, read it, and you should probably at some point. Anybody else have the other answer, which is technically the right one, though that was really good. It's called Capital. That's Capital. We would just say Capital. He's really known for embracing what we'd call coercive uh, state uh, socialism. Coercive state socialism. Basically, that's the notion that the state owns everything important 
in a society. There's no free market of any kind, and the state sets prices, and the, the goal is to equalize economic distribution. So basically, everybody has about the same thing as everybody else, and nobody has any real needs. Uh, <clears throat> to do that, of course, you had to use politics or the state. Now, why? Why would Marx say that it was necessary? I mean, why wouldn't people like voluntarily say, sure, I got like a lot of food, and I'm just, just going to give it away, and my couch is a leather couch, but yours is like a fabric couch. Come get my couch. Well, I mean, most people would say that, wouldn't they? No. Marx said, well, people are basically greedy, and they won't do that. They won't share, and therefore they need the state or politics to come and say, unless you give it away, you're going to jail, or we're going to shoot you, or something like that. Um, the state forces people to share. Um, now, let's get to Marxism. Marxism. Um, here's David Held's definition. He kind of died at a relatively young age. He was a Marxist. He says that Marxism uh, is a theory designed with practical intent to criticize and subvert domination in all its forms. The key word there is the D word, domination. Okay? Um, I mean, that sounds great and benign, right? I mean, nobody likes to be dominated. So we would say, yeah, get me on board for that, baby. I'm going to be a Marxist because I hate domination in all of its forms. Sounds sort of impressive. But actually, by domination, Marx and the Marxists don't really mean what we would say domination. They mean authority. They're at war with authority. And of course, the Bible teaches authority. And this is the fundamental reason, the fundamental reason that Christianity is at variance with Marxism. That issue specifically. Uh, Marx was a Christian in his youth when he was mm, maybe a little younger than you. How many of you here are like 17? Okay, when he was 17, he actually wrote a Christian devotional. Can you believe that? This man that became a towering atheist. Atheistic thought that influenced, in a bad way, millions and millions of people in the 20th century. He, sadly, he got to college, and as he got to college, he lost his faith. And let this be a lesson to you. Okay, So many young people are losing their faith in college. You don't need to do that. I'm just going to stop and say this. I'm going to start preaching for like 30 seconds. The Christian faith is rigorously intellectual. There is nothing any professor that you're going to encounter. There's nothing any professor, the smartest one, he or she, the smartest one could say that is somehow going to be more intellectually rigorous than a fully formed biblical Christian worldview. And the resources historically for that are just so evident. Okay, the sermon stopped. I'm back. Um, so it's an attack on authority, um, Marxism. Uh, of course, in the Bible, we see authority that parents have authority, and uh, husbands have authority, and pastors have authority, and business owners have authority, but Marx didn't like that. Marx and Marxism hate authority, uh, particularly on the economic Front, and that really was the big issue. He hated economic domination. He used two French words to describe the people in a society, two classes, he would say. Does anybody know these two classes? The dominant class, 
Starts sort of a French word you probably have heard with a B. Do you know what it is? There you go. You guys are absolutely brilliant. This is just going to be great. Bourgeoisie. And who are the bourgeoisie? Well, I'll tell you. They're the business owners, they're the people who have a lot of wealth. It would include politicians and people like that in a position to govern wealth and to manage how wealth is spent, a large portion of it. And then there are those who kind of have to sell themselves to work for them in the factory. They get paid, wage slaves. That's the P word, and that is the... Beautiful, proletariat, right. That was sort of Marx's view. So the goal of Marxism is to use the state and politics to crush the economic hierarchy the economic hierarchy that, in his view, permits this domination. Now, I want to stop right there. Anybody, everybody understand that? Everybody tracking with me? Okay. So, uh, the 20th century um, is littered with um, Marxist political regimes. Anybody know the first nation in the history of the world to embrace Marxist thinking? That happened in October of 19... 19- 17. Um, those were just uh, <clears throat> Mr. Boot back here. It was just when he was a young man. Michael Boot. <laughs> no, it was 1917. No, he wasn't alive then. Uh, does, any, does anybody know what that nation is? Anybody know? It's Russia and a number of other nations that became a union of states, almost like the United States, but a union of nations called the Soviet Union, right? Then the second largest. Um, was or in land area, more in population, happened after World War II. Do you know where that was? That was in China, was Mao Zedong, right? Both of those were violent revolutions. Uh, now we know that they're infamous for their inhumanity, their repression and imprisonment and exile and torture and murder and death. Um, and by the way, everywhere that this Marxist ideology went politically, everywhere that it went Politically, it produced this. We don't have examples of Marxist societies that are fabulously wealthy, uh, like essentially Canada is and the United States. We don't have examples of that. It always ended in that stuff, always, everywhere that it went. Uh, These regimes have been spectacular failures. Now, I want to get to another version of Marxism that has not been a spectacular failure, and here comes the coffee, Um, that that has not been a spectacular failure, but has been actually a spectacular success. Now, does anybody know, um, have any of you like visited the Soviet Union? You know why you haven't visited it? Do you want to know why? Because it's not there anymore. I mean, Russia as a country is, but the Marxist Soviet Union is not. Communist China is there, but it's not nearly as communist as it used to be. It's much more nationalistic. Okay, so except for like North Korea, which is the only real, here's Stalin, uh, just a bloodthirsty, evil dictator, the only real regime left in the world that is truly Stalinist, uh, not even so much Cuba, though it's a bad place, is North Korea. Everything else, it's all gone. You say, well, this is great, Andrew. Marxism is all gone. But you see, it's not really all gone. Would you like to know where it is now? The schools you're going to be going to. Okay, that's what you need. How many of you, by the way, maybe I wasn't in here when this question, if it was asked. How many of you either in a few weeks or like next year will be going to university? Raise your hand. Or college, I mean. I mean, you're, okay. How many of you are 
uh, going to a non-Christian school, a state school or a non-Christian school or college? Let me reverse that. How many of you are going to a Christian college? Okay. So you are all going, and I just want to prepare you for this. You can just get excited about it. Just all jump up and clap. You're all going to a Marxist campus. Now let me tell you why that is. The dominant ideology, the dominant view, the dominant worldview on virtually every non-Christian campus in the Western world, in England, in France, in Canada, in the United States, virtually everyone, the dominant worldview of most of the faculty, and the ethos, Dr. Boot used the word ethos, did he not? The ethos, that's just sort of the way of thinking, the broad way of thinking on the campus is cultural Marxism. Not so much political Marxism, but uh, cultural Marxism. Now, <clears throat> some of you said, well, okay, Andrew, so what's cultural Marxism? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, <clears throat> The European Marxists at the time, uh, during the Russian Revolution and right afterwards, they knew that Marxism couldn't win in the West by armed conflict. Now, you all know that in the Soviet Union and in China, I mean, how did Marxism come to be the dominant viewpoint? Do you know how? I mean, how did those states become communistic? This is not a trick question. Revolution, armed revolution in both of them. But the Western Marxists, the cultural Marxists, knew that probably was not going to work in Canada. The workers were probably in Canada not going to say, I'm really mad, I only make like $37 an hour and I should be making 45 so I'm going to get my gun and go shoot my boss. No, no probably we're not going to do that in Canada because Canadians are too nice. <laughs> A few in the U.S. might do that, but even in the U.S. they're probably not going to do that. Okay. So they said, because of that, there has to be another way. There has to be another method of accomplishing what we want. And their view is not so much by capturing politics, though that also was included in the goal, but rather capture the culture, that is, the uh, education. Places like you're going. And music, and the movies, and art. And literature, and we would say more recently TV and YouTube and even the churches. There's a little expression for the cultural Marxist. One of the early ones is said to have said this. I don't know whether he actually coined it, but it is the correct idea. You might want to write it down. The long march through the institutions. Long march through the institutions. For, so for the cultural Marxist, the battle is not getting guns and shooting people, shooting the prime minister, shooting the president of the U.S., and sort of taking over by armed revolution, just sort of quietly, little by little, letting your ideas infiltrate all of these other cultural institutions. And then, and then, people wake up and say, we lost our country. Now, um, the cultural Marxists have been exceedingly successful at this. I'm going to show you that real quickly at the end. Um, let me just real quickly read, uh, oh, there he is, Sidney Hook. He was a in his youth, he was a flaming uh, Marxist, uh, Marxist idealist as he got older, as happens in many cases. He gave up on <laughs> the utopian vision of Marxism. But here's essentially a definition of it. 
He says it's a, it's a philosophy of human liberation. It seeks to overcome human alienation, to emancipate man from repressive social institutions, especially economic institutions that frustrate his, note this, what I've emphasized, true nature, and to bring him into harmony with himself, his fellow men, and the world around him so that he can overcome his estrangements and express his true essence through creative freedom. Now, that's not identical to Marx's original economic vision. It's worse. Because essentially what he is saying is, describing cultural Marxism, is what Rousseau Rousseau said. Anybody hear of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher in the 18th century? He basically said, the problem with society is society. The problem with the world is society. Because we have all of the institutions like families and churches and so on, and they have rules and we have to abide by them. I mean, your parents say you have to get up really early, like about 1130. And if you're going to go to college, the class starts way, so way early, like about two in the afternoon. And it's like to stay awake, you have to have coffee delivered to you. And uh, your boss says, yeah, you need to be at work at 9 o'clock, and you need to treat the customers well, and if you don't, you might get fired. And so essentially what happens is that your true self, see that, the true essence, the true self is suppressed. See, for Marx, originally the problem was economic repression. For the cultural Marxists, it's this sort of personal existential repression that does not allow you... Creative freedom. Now, by creative freedom, he does not mean that you should have the freedom to sort of creatively uh, get a palette and draw a beautiful picture. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that according to the Marxists, you should have the freedom to basically invent yourself or reinvent yourself. You can be anything you want to be. You want to be trans? Baby, go for it. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do that. Don't listen to your parents. Don't listen. Society is conspiring to oppress you. So in this case, it's not really the bourgeoisie that is doing the oppression. It's basically these traditional institutions. And essentially, in Western society, this means Christian-based institutions. Cultural Marxism is essentially an attempt to overturn and erase Christian culture and Christian society. And guess what? You're headed right for it. If you're going to state campuses, certainly aspects of it, wherever you go. Um, An example of this is the, uh, yeah, expressive individualism, right? This is a a prominent idea. I mean, look at these. I mean, just think about this. Aren't these ideas you have encountered? Be authentic, authentic. Have you heard that word? That's just like this buzzword. That's just a Rousseauian, cultural Marxist word. Be authentic. In other words, don't follow external rules. Don't follow the authority of the word of God. Don't listen to your pastor. You be yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do. If you want to be weird, they're the ones that are weird. You're not weird at all. You want to dress like that and look like a goofball? That's expressive individualism, it's called. Follow your heart. Right? Ever hear that? Don't, don't you get sick of that? Follow your heart. It's just like really disgusting, actually. Because how does the Bible describe our heart? 
deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. So you actually don't want to follow your heart. You want to follow the Word of God. And uh, reimagine yourself. Some of these things are just so platitudinous and beautiful. Reimagine yourself, you know. You be you. That's the way it's You be you. Doesn't that sound good? It's profound. Be you. You know. Don't let anybody else decide who you are. You decide who you are. So really the strong emphasis on the cultural mar- by the cultural Marxists is, it's a word I believe the doctor used, autonomy, autonomy, self-law, a law to oneself, and write this down or remember it, particularly in our culture, sexual autonomy. That is the key issue. Because sex is, is such a part of our nature, it's so important, and according to the Bible and Christian worldview, it is very important which is why we have to conform it to the Word of God. Because it is so important, intuitively the cultural Marxists know it's important, so if they're going to express autonomy in sexuality, that is the place you want to express your autonomy. Uh, So behind this is critical theory, the philosophy behind cultural Marxism. Uh, Here they are, the original ones in... uh, the Fran- not, not many of them, Frankfurt School, maybe just a few more than we have in this room. These people, see these people here? They're Germans. Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Frankfurt. Anybody here know ge- uh, geography? Where is Frankfurt? Germany. Exactly. Anybody know the German time period called the Weimar Republic? Not all at once now. Who? That was after World War I. Exactly. From about 1918, about 19, before Hitler took over, 1932-33, the Weimar Republic, it was sort of a democracy. These guys were Western Marxists and essentially started cultural theory and uh, cultural Marxism. Isn't that amazing? There are so few of them. I mean, this is how they started. Look, here's the deal. I want you to understand it. These people changed Western culture. These people. Marcuse's in there, and Horkheimer, and Eric Fromm, and various others. Some of the names, you don't need to even know their names. It's remarkable. Not many more people in this room. So if you think that you need a lot of people to change the world, you don't need a lot of people to change the world. These people essentially changed the world. After um, Hitler kicked them out of Germany in the 30s, They ended up in, of all places, I know you won't believe it, the United States. On campuses like Brandeis and Stanford, and particularly Columbia, brought over by that wonderful American pragmatist John Dewey. They had plenty, he had plenty of money to spend, foundation, and he brought them over and they infected thousands, thousands and thousands of people in Columbia Teachers College and at Brandeis and elsewhere and their writings went all over the place and impacted people. Um, so critical theory, let's go through these. So critical theory, I'm just going to, this is, can be highly uh, complicated, and I don't want to complicate it. I want it to be uncomplicated for you, but nonetheless truthful. So let me tell you kind of the, the leading points here about critical theory, which is the thinking and philosophy behind uh, cultural Marxism. Critical theory isn't just a way of thinking, it's a way of thinking about thinking, say, all right, that's just pretty weird. Yeah, it kind of is. So the important thing to the critical theorist is not just what we think, but how we think. And 
The first thing to understand is that we're always, in our thinking, in our cultural analysis, analyzing social forces. Now, um, traditional theory, whether scientific or whatever, would be like this. Let's say we're going to look at this chair. We would say, okay, this chair uh, has leather, or at least a very good imitation of it, and it's beautifully designed, and I'm sure somebody designed it so that we could sit on it, I can like sit down on it, and uh, maybe I don't know exactly where it came from, but this is just a sort of a fascinating chair. I'm kind of taking it apart, and maybe there are a couple of screws in here and so on. That's sort of traditional analysis. For the critical theorists, that's not enough. They would ask questions like, why would anyone want to make that chair in the first place? Why weren't there chairs like this like 500 years ago? Particularly, what are the social forces and the economic forces that would have led people to consider creating a chair like this? You say, well, that's just kind of intense, yeah. But you see, they said that essentially, or wanted to say that in principle about virtually everything. You can't just look at something and analyze it. Everything has sort of a socioeconomic foundation and background. And that's why it's called critical theory, you see. Everything must always be seen in its larger socioeconomic context, which means for them underlying reasons and meaning are never self-evident. Now think about that for a minute. That's a little scary. I mean, here we are. I mean, like, you look at this and you say, that's a chair. And I say, oh, what is it really? And you go, really? Chair? And the cultural Marxist would say, but it's not really a chair. There's a lot more to it than that. And so they would go into a long and complicated explanation of what this chair really is, how it came about, and so on. Which leads to, and this is perhaps the most important aspect of it, yep, Dialectics. Have any of you here ever heard of dialectics? Or dialectical thinking? Okay. So, um, in this sense, it was started by Hegel. Anybody hear of the German philosopher Hegel before? H-U-G-E-L? Okay. I won't go into all of that. But simply sort of describe dialectics to you. It's essentially the notice that reality is always in motion. Okay, I want to get some hands up here. The other questions didn't get hands up. This will get hands up. How many of you here like Star Trek? Oh. <laughs> You're all fired. Go home. No. There was, I saw a Star Trek is interesting episode, uh, movie uh, a couple years ago, uh, Into Darkness, and one of the characters says something like, oh, I really couldn't figure teleporting out until I recognized that space itself is moving. Now, that's kind of counterintuitive. We don't, I mean, it doesn't look like it is, does it? I mean, we look up and it looks like, what do you think? Yeah, space. And that's true. Space itself is moving. Well, to these guys, history itself is moving. It's not just that we are born and we live and we die. History itself is moving. And essentially, therefore, everything that you see, everything we look at is always becoming. Being is in becoming. Everything is is in flux. Everything is changing. Everything is relative. So when they look at something, they will say, you can't look at this chair as it is. You have to look as it was five years ago. And before that, the components of it, where they would have been 15 years before that, and where this chair is going to be 10 years from now, or not, or what it's going to change into. So how did that get back to, oh, there we go. 
Um, so, must consider reality and what it's been and becoming not what it is. It's never just a matter of what is. Everything is always in flux, in flow, in process. I won't go into this. How many of you have heard of Hegel's idea of the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis? Hear of that? Okay, I don't want to go into that in detail. But, well, let's go to the next point. This is the one where we're really... Okay, well, there he is, such a handsome man. (laughs) The next point in critical theory, when we talk about change, change always comes by conflict. So, now, Hegel's idea was that... Let me stop. Who's still tracking with me? Everybody tracking with me here? Okay, all right. Hegel didn't agree with Marx on this, but this fundamental idea is a Marxist idea. For Hegel, the important thing was ideas. That isn't true for Marx. But there's like this sort of overarching thesis in a society. Then this thesis contains within itself a contradiction. And that contradiction starts to battle the thesis. And then they fight one another. And they sort of, in essence, essence join one another. And they become the synthesis, which is different from both the thesis and the antithesis. Everybody still following me? And this synthesis becomes the brand new thesis, and then it starts all over again. Now you see how this is sort of very evolutionary? Ideas in society, it's very evolutionary. But to Marx, because he was a materialist, this is true of everything. This and that and everything is always in becoming. There are always things battling one another. Change in society comes by conflict. Everybody's following me thus far? Okay. If that's the case, if there's no change without conflict, uh, and if change always produces progress, which this does, that means conflict is good. And that's where we get to the bottom line with respect to cultural Marxism. So I want to bring this down. I know what I've said thus far is kind of theoretical, so let me bring this down so you'll understand. This is why cultural Marxists who believe in society and changes, everybody see it? Changes in society. This is why cultural Marxists are constantly starting conflicts between classes of people. They want women fighting men and men fighting women. They want the races fighting one another. Whites against blacks, Asians against Whites, Hispanics, all across the board. In your country, First Nations against you know, the whites, the Europeans. And perhaps even more so, lately in our society, homosexuals versus heterosexuals. Why do they believe that? These battles, these battles will get rid of domination. And there's always one group they consider to be dominant. I mean, do you understand? Of this polarity... They would say between men and women, historically, who has been dominant? This is not a trick question. Men. Therefore, their dominance has to be overthrown because they're just bad. And right down the line. Okay, let's... So the main one is in sexuality, who has been dominant historically? Heterosexuals or homosexuals? So whose oppression has to be overthrown? 
Heterosexual oppression has to be overthrown. And that's a good thing because that will produce progress. And so this conflict will produce progress where all this stuff is overthrown. Everybody kind of understand? Understand that? Okay. Since this is the case, I've got to move on quickly here. Moral standards themselves are dialectical. Um, so this is like, uh, of today and tomorrow my talks, this is the most difficult one, but you know what? This is one of the most important ones. So um, you might not be able to understand this the first time, but I'm going to break this down because you need to understand this. Okay? Is that fair enough? Is it okay to learn things that are too difficult to understand? So the five years from now, when you go back and read this, you're going to say, oh, that's so easy. I know exactly what that means. I can't believe I never understood that. Right? That's why I'm doing this. So this is from the Communist Manifesto. Right? This is, you can read it. Marx is writing against people criticizing communism, Marxism, obviously, criticizing his notion that in the right kind of society, the wealthy people at the time would be forced to give up their wealth, coercively forced to give up their wealth. These critics would say, well, that's stealing. We came by this property by right. We worked very hard for it. It's ours for us and our family. To them, he says, don't wrangle with us so long as you apply to our intended abolition of bourgeois, we know what that means, right? Property. In other words, he says, we intend to abolish private property. The standard of your bourgeois notions of freedom, culture, and law. See, he didn't believe there are universal standards. He says, your economic condition has put you, has created in you a way of thinking such that you have created your own views of what it means to be free. Your own views of what culture is. Your own views of what law should be. Your very ideas, he says, are about the outgrowth of the conditions of your bourgeois production and bourgeois property. In other words, you kind of are just creating all of these ideas of law and society and parliament and all of that. You're creating all that just to defend your property. That's what he's saying. He's following me. You see what he's saying? Okay. Just as your jurisprudence, long word, easy to understand. What's jurisprudence? You know, law, the courts, the court systems, is but the will of your class made into a law for all. You see what he's saying there? He's saying this is an idea that you created, and you're telling everybody it's a universal idea. They're universal right and wrong, but basically it's just you invented your morals. A will whose essential character and direction are determined by the economical conditions of existence of your class. Now, I know that's kind of complicated, but I think you can understand what he's kind of saying there. He's saying, among other things, that morality and law are relative. That's what he's saying. Now, he's only deal. Now, listen, follow me here. He's only dealing with economics. The cultural Marxists would, in principle, agree with all of that. But they would say things like, well, you guys, the problem is you guys embrace um, Christian morality or white male morality. And they would say things like, I know it sounds strange, but it's true. This notion that 4 times 4 equals 16, that is white Western philosophical mathematics. Um, Afro-American or feminist mathematics is different. Oh, like how does that work? Because what's the goal again? The goal is subversion 
of universal moral standards and getting rid of the domination. All right, I'm going to pause. How many are still following me? I'm, not, I'm going to be done here. Okay, and you can ask. We are going to have a Q&A, well, maybe today, but certainly tomorrow. Panel, right, Joe? Okay, Joe's falling asleep. We'll wake him up. He needs coffee. Um, <clears throat> so everybody understands that. Um, all right, let's just move on then. I like only put that picture up because that is like the creepiest picture. <laughs> Pretty creepy, wouldn't you say? Now you're awake. Um, so, for the cultural Marxists, inequality is oppression. They decide what inequality is. Oppression must be eliminated, and that will create the utopian society must be egalitarian. When we have, like, just sort of all of these little spooky, uh, genetically engineered, cloned girls. Um, no, that's not the important thing. Is that essentially, there are no standards except those that the cultural Marxists create. They get to decide. So for them, everything, that's why they say everything's a power play in society. They'll say that. Certain groups, you have power in society. The notion that there should be um, liberty within the bounds of the law, that everybody should be treated fairly under the law, no matter what your sex, no matter what your color, no matter if you're rich or poor, you should be treated fairly under the law. This is, quote, yes, that's Western jurisprudence. And would you like to know where we of the West, England, uh, Canada, the United States, France, would you like to know where we got that idea of equality under the law? This is not a trick question. Would you like to know where we got it? We got it from the Bible. I can show you. I won't take the time. Equality under the law is a biblical idea. That's where our forefathers got this idea. But of course, they don't believe that, though I won't go into detail what they believe. Okay, which means that Okay, this uh, Horkheimer, we saw his picture earlier when he was a younger man. Um, this is a very powerful quote of his. Uh, he's certainly, if not the founder of cultural Marxism, one of them, and it's almost certain that he was the founder of critical theory. I mean, he wrote the essay that kind of launched it. This is a pretty ominous quote, which is why I put it up there. This is a scary quote. You heard of scare, quote? You've heard of scare quotes before? Here's a scary one. Uh, who here would like to read this quote? I just want to see if you're awake. See if the co- coffee's kicking in. Come on, you're like, don't be shy. Yes? The revolution won't happen with guns. Rather, it will happen incrementally, year by year, generation by generation. You will gradually infiltrate your educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist... Entities, I'm sorry, the ease off. I mean, the yes. Yeah. What is egalitarianism? A state of equality where everybody is the same. But notice he says, what did I say earlier? The revolution won't happen with guns. It'll happen incrementally. What does incrementally mean? Right. He says basically, little by little, slowly, year by year, generation by generation, gradually infiltrate their educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist entities as we move toward universal egalitarianism. Oh, by the way, did you notice we'll infiltrate, infiltrate, his first institution he said they would infiltrate is their what? And guess where you're going? So why do you think I'm even taking, why did Dr. Boot ask me to speak on this? Because you're going to encounter all this stuff. 
Everybody understand that? This is essentially the worldview that you'll be encountering. So, um, it includes things like this. Um, we won't go into class consciousness. Um, well, I mentioned this, didn't I? Create classes, create conflict between the classes. Individuals are not created, or not rather treated as individuals. You're not personally responsible. You're looked at as only a female or only as uh, Hispanic uh, or only as older or only as wealthy. You're considered part of a class. I won't go into equality of results versus equality of conditions. We can talk about that later. Uh, that class consciousness, which was written about in, a, in the 19, what, 1917, 1918 by George Lukacs. Now, oops, excuse me, that's a spooky picture. Um, is now uh, identity politics. Of course, I mentioned these, didn't I? Remember identity politics? These groups are sort of joining together to overthrow everybody else. And then in the, as we move forward, here's a creepy picture, my second and last creepy picture. Uh, this is not like uh, made up. This is actually a, a person. You can check it on YouTube. Read about this man, this male. Uh, so it's not just warring on classes. There's also underneath cultural Marxism now the war on creation itself. So this man became a woman and then he decided that I wasn't good enough. Um, he believed in expressive individualism that this body, the, the, the sexual body that he had, was not fair. I mean, what right, what right has nature or God to tell him that he's a male, right? And so the true him, the real him inside him, um, rebelled against that. And so he's gradually, you know, sort of trying to make himself a dragon. This is real. This is not made up. Again, check it out. You say, well, Andrew, that's just like pretty weird and disgusting, and most people wouldn't do that. But I, yeah, that's true. But the, 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 the principle and the premise of this logic is behind a lot of modern cultural Marxism. That the real you is not your body. The real you lives inside you and is in your imagination, and you can sort of make up your own identity, sexual identity, or anything else. If you wanted to be a tree, I guess you could be a tree too. So liberation, then, the oppressor in this case, so you tell me. In this case, looking at this guy, and it really is a guy, for him, who really is the oppressor? Who is the oppressor that he is really trying to overthrow? What's that? God. Because, I mean, God gave him the body. So really underlying all of cultural Marxism... When you trace it all back, basically it is all a war against God and his standards and the reality in which we live. Reality is no longer a given. It's not something creation that we are born into, as Dr. Booth says. It's not that. It's something that we ourselves must create and recreate in every generation. That's autonomy. Which leads to, and I'll close with this, um, well, um, yeah, there's Gramsci. I won't go into his... Uh, okay, so here, quickly before I get to those final things and I'll be done. What the cu cultural Marxists were saying, Marcuse even said this in his uh, 1965 lecture at Brandeis. My son uh, has a degree, master's from Brandeis in Boston. Don't worry, my son's not a cultural Marxist. 
but Brandeis, or he gave a famous lecture there on repressive tolerance. And basically he said in there, and I'm summarizing here, that we, it's, it's necessary to sort of change the bourgeois Western way of thinking that uh, Christianity has, quote, imposed on everyone, uh, taken over by classical liberalism. And basically, he, and he says this, that's almost a direct quote, common sense must become uncommon. What's considered normal by those people that is by us must become abnormal. He says things like men and women are really, really identical. I mean, they can do all the same things. Um, heterosexuality is, uh, is weird, and homosexuality is very normal. And uh, freedom is, a pre- is, is oppression, because freedom means that your church and your family can establish rules for you, but that's oppressing you. And therefore, you should break free from all of that. So what was once considered normal must now become abnormal. You must essentially be brainwashed. So, this leads... What are some quick examples of this as we close? Radical feminism. There is, of course, we might say, a biblical feminism. I don't even like that language. But certainly, the exaltation of women, you young ladies here, is a biblical idea. We could talk about that tomorrow. The Bible holds women in the highest regard. But for radical feminism, man and woman must be redefined. They don't want to exalt women. They want to redefine what it is to be a woman and a man. See the difference? They believe that sex is a social construction. Now, it it really would take a college-educated person to be that stupid. Because, like, and this is a mixed audience, I'm not going to go beyond this, but like you kind of can look at yourself, kind of can look at yourself in the mirror and sort of figure out that your sexuality is not a social construction. It's actually sort of God's construction. Right? You came into the world. Everybody understand that? Do I understand anymore? <laughs> and so now we have a new word. One thing cultural Marxists want to do, they want to win the battle for language. And they say this explicitly. Like Karl Marx originally said, he said the communists in the Communist Manifesto, we disdain to hide our aims. These guys aren't like, there's a secret cultural Marxist conspiracy going on. There's no secret conspiracy. Just go read what they said. They'll tell you exactly what they want to do. One thing is they want to get rid of the term sex and gender. Use the word gender. Now, gender historically is a perfectly, perfectly good word. Shakespeare used it. But today, it means that like there are two sexes, but I think on... I heard on Facebook a couple years ago they were up to, you could like give yourself like up to 57 genders. Yeah. Now I hear there's kind of a continuum. You kind of push the little, you know how you do on these websites, you push the little button. What gender are you? Well, let me see how far I can go down here. Okay, whatever that is, that's the gender that I am. It's red, whatever it is. So I'm going to make a recommendation to you. Um, don't, Don't use that word. Ask what gender are you? Well, say male or female, but you know, I mean, just don't go around asking people their genders. Sex, sex is not a dirty word. It can't be reduced to intercourse. Okay, it's not a dirty word. There are two sexes, and there's nothing wrong with that. Glory in that. It's wonderful. But genders, yeah. Well, you know, a couple years ago I was trans, but now I think I'm sort of transitioning back into sort of a lesbian transgender introductory way. And eventually I might make myself back to a kind of androgynous person, or maybe a dragon. (laughs) 
This radical feminism all ends in the destruction of womanhood because if sex is a social construction, that's not safe either. That will destroy what it means to be a woman. Then homosexuality. This is one of the tamer pictures I could get, trust me. Do you guys know that uh, as late as in the United States, probably similar in Canada, um, in, in the early 1970s, that the major psychiatric and psychological uh, organizations still considered uh, homosexuality and uh, homosexuality a mental disorder. You can go back and look at the text today. If you were to say that, you might like get thrown in jail, or at least like somebody might want to come and beat you up. Okay, this is a radical historical innovation. The whole idea of same-sex marriage. How many of you think that homosexuality began like about 50 years ago? Don't raise your hand. It's been around almost as long as the fall. It's a terrible sin. It's a terrible perversion. You read about it in the Bible, right? One of those homosexualized cultures in the ancient world was the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic. A lot of the fathers there, they would have extended families and they would be married and they would tragically have little boys that would be their little perverse lovers. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that perverse? But we actually are worse than them. Do you know why? Because nobody in the Roman Empire would ever have thought that one of those men could marry anybody that's a male. Because they understood marriage is like between a man and a woman. You can like go off and have all these <coughs> pedophilia urges and boys, but you're going to have to actually stay with your wife because marriage is a foundational institution. So in this sense, we are worse than the Roman Republic and Roman Empire. By redefining marriage leads to cultural tyranny they essentially say you can't well a good example I'll just mention quickly the preferred gender pronouns did you know now that you know a person gets to decide in a work situation well last week I was a she but I'm transitioning to a he or a dragon and I will be addressed that way and if you don't address me that way you can lose your job or go to jail or be fined or something like that um, Well, that's kind of a creepy picture, too, actually. So, basically, if you take relativism within a particular society and apply it to all the cultures of the world, that's what you get. Multiculturalism. Have you heard of multiculturalism before? It's basically the idea that one culture cannot be thought to be superior to another culture. And it ends up... Uh, Of course, it's a denial of universal cultural standards. It ends up with this. Cheap, trashy culture becomes as good as high culture. And maybe a a, a sub-Saharan free verse is considered to be uh, every bit as good as or perhaps superior to Shakespeare. Or maybe just somebody, you know, um, hitting on drums maybe once every seven and three-quarter seconds is considered to be as beautiful as uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. I'm not joking. These things go on. And in modern art, you have a white background, and a modern artist puts a white dot on a white background, and that's considered remarkable art. (laughs) And every bit, and every bit, as good artistically as Rembrandt, And if not, who are you to say? Who are you to judge? Don't you love that language? Who are you to judge? 
Who are you to judge? If there are no longer any universal cultural standards that are rooted in creation and rooted in the word of God, who are you to judge? Right? Now, do you understand, by the way, quickly, do you understand why, how this is self-defeating? You know what I mean by self-defeating, right? I mean, it, it's inherent within itself, it defeats itself. You understand that? I mean, let's take the National Socialist culture, 1933 to 1945. After the war at Nuremberg, there were some of the leaders that were brought to trial because of their murder of all the Jews. And would you like to know what their defense was? You know what they said? I was only following the law. Now, on this premise of multiculturalism, could you say that they're wrong? Well, this is part of the Nazi culture. I mean, if we believe that Jews or homosexuals should be taken out and shot or gassed, who are you to say? That's our culture. Keep your filthy Western hands off our culture. We want to kill all the Jews we want. You say, Andrew, that's kind of a forceful point. I wish you could make it a little more timidly. I don't do timid. When you have things like this that are so utterly destructive, which is to say you must have universal moral standards to stand strongly against tyranny and evil. If you don't have universal moral standards, then basically in the end, everything's okay. And you know what? According to the word of God, everything's not okay. Everything's not okay. You see, non-judgmentalism sounds really great. It sounds really great until somebody steals your iPhone. Right? It's like, well, I don't want to impose my standards on someone else. And then the college freshman says, who took my iPhone? Right? Well, that shows that this is just utterly self-defeating. Um, so, I think I've brought, come to a hasty conclusion. Is this stuff like, yeah, you're going to meet this stuff, or versions of it, on your campus when you go. It may not look exactly like this, but the premise behind it, the philosophy you will encounter, with words like um, toxic masculinity, white privilege, heteronormativity that's one of my favorites heteronormativity that like if you believe that you're a male or a female and as God brings someone to you you get married and have children that that like is only one way and probably not the best way and how dare you say that that's the only way you can do marriage that's heteronormativity you'll hear all this language on campus So uh, I just want to let you know that this stuff, not just is this uh, multiculturalism inherently self-defeating, the entire cultural Marxist project and critical theory is inherently self-defeating. You know why? It's at war with God. And we live in a God-rigged universe. Nobody ever plays against God and wins overcome God. He doesn't know what I'm up to over here. I'm going to pull a little trick and overcome his kingdom. Well, good luck with that. You're not going to be able to do that. So this is all going to lose. I just love that picture, you know? I mean, shouldn't be going on killing people, but that's a metaphor for fighting the battle. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Which of you young men, I mean, here's a guy here, so we, it's appropriate for one of you young men, would you be willing to read that final text for us? Not all at once now. For the weapons of our Lord are not 
right and that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought of that captivity to the obedience of Christ. I said emphasis applied. Would you read again the bold part? Every thought into captivity. Every thought, every thought, every culturally Marxist thought, every Darwinist thought, every single one, every single one has to get rid of its disobedience and rebellion and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's why you're here. And that's why the Ezra Institute exists for that. That Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and everything, including in people's intellects. Everybody got that? All right, there's probably not time for questions, or is there time for a question or two?